We have been dwelling upon the question, what do we know about limitations imposed upon the exercise of God's loving kindness and mercy from the Bible? As we view the whole world of mankind with their sufferings, deprivations, disappointments, and frustrations, it would appear that all must admit that there is a limitation of some sort in the merciful manifestations of God. When we view the evidences for the profound greatness of God and trace the many manifestations of God's goodness, we cannot but feel that God is able to show forth His mercy and kindness more than He is now doing. We know too much of the benevolence of God to say that He is arbitrarily refusing to show forth more of the radiance of His love and goodness. If God would so deliberately refuse to be all the blessing to man that He could be, He would cease to be benevolent. He would then be arbitrarily selfish and would be taking advantage of His greatness. But such thoughts as these are utterly without foundation and thus must be forever put away. There is something within us that declares the basic goodness of God so loudly that we must affirm that God must limit the exercise of His abounding goodness and mercy for good and wise reasons. Does the Bible give us the solution to this most important of all problems? Does it illuminate our minds so that we might think over the problems of the world of men from God's viewpoint? If we thoroughly understand the problems, then we who are disposed to serve God and be a blessing to our fellow men can be intelligent in our service and in truth be laborers together with God, as the Apostle Paul affirmed that he was. We have within our bosoms a consciousness of guilt, and therefore our first reaction is that the problem of forgiveness is so great that God would injure his cause to pardon our many sins and to put them away forever. Then our consciousness of the difficulties and failures of human government leads us further from hope and expectation. If we have not been able to exercise mercy in our human governments without justice suffering and governmental authority weakened, can God solve the apparently unsolvable. Our misuse of pardon weakens a small domain of government, which is counteracted and helped by the divine government. But if God would jeopardize his universal government over the multitude of his moral beings and human and uh, angelic worlds, the foundations and distinctions of right and wrong would disappear and moral values would collapse. But however insurmountable these problems appear to be, it is the wonderful message of the Bible, the essence of the glorious gospel or good news toward all, that God's side of this colossal obstacle to the free pardon of sinners has been removed. By substituting the sufferings of the incarnated Lord Jesus Christ for the righteous punishment of sinners, God is able to forgive man as he always wanted to do, without jeopardizing his moral government, without his own character being misinterpreted, and with moral forces 
at his disposal to thoroughly subdue man's rebellious heart. These wonderful revelations of the Bible we have considered somewhat at length. Are there no further barriers to the free exercise of God's abounding loving kindness and mercy? There must be, for the Lord Jesus said in a parable concerning the wedding feast that he was speaking about, Come, for all things are now ready, as recorded in Luke chapter 14 and verse 17. Evidently, unless men respond to the kind invitations and promptings of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and God's unworthy servants, the storehouses of God's unspeakable blessings must remain sealed up. Isaiah pictures God in a pathetic situation in his fifth chapter and verse 4. The great God is inquiring of man as to what more he might do to persuade man to remove the barriers to his visitations of mercy. Is this not an inconceivable situation? There we read, What could I have been done more to my vineyard than I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And so the great God invites man to reason together with him. It is now man, therefore, who is entirely to blame for the limited manner in which the overwhelming benevolence of God is being manifested. Our Lord Jesus expressed God's great heart when he spoke with a great burden and compassion in his spirit, no doubt, as recorded in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Notice the reply that our Lord Jesus gives as to the reason that God's loving kindness and mercy and his loving kindness and mercy while on earth had to be limited. It is utterly impossible for God to remove the obstacles that man has erected. It is so impossible that God goes to the trouble of seeking to persuade man to do so. If God could make up man's mind for him by an act of omnipotence, that would be easy. But now, as we have seen, he commands all men everywhere to repent. He insists that men shall turn to have a reverential attitude toward him if his mercy is to be bestowed. And he must turn from a state of disobedience to one of obedience. And thus we were in process of reading the scriptures on this theme. We came to the New Testament, where in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 3, we read these words, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What a sad fact and event this will be. Nevertheless, 
It is what the Lord Jesus Christ affirmed. In Luke chapter 11, verse 28, our Lord is recorded to have said, Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. And so it is imperative, if God is to extend his loving kindness and mercy, that men turn to a willingness to live in obedience and fellowship with himself. In the fifth chapter of Acts, in verse 32, we read these words, And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Now the gift of the Spirit was the marvelous event that occurred on the day of Pentecost. And Peter said that the conditions of receiving the Spirit were repentance and an exercise of faith. And so in the first chapter of Romans, we see that Paul affirmed and insisted that all who were going to be saved had to turn to a state of obedience, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And in the second chapter of Romans, verses 6 to 11, we read, Who will render to every man according to his deeds? To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. Here we see it to be an unalterable fact that is stated in the most clear language that if men are going to be saved, they have to turn from a state of disobedience and consent to walk with the Lord in his glorious blessing in a state of obedience. In the sixth chapter of Romans, verses 16 to 18, we also have this affirmed. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servant of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Notice Paul's insistence on obedience as a condition of the kind, merciful forgiveness of God. In the 15th chapter of Romans, we also see this essence of Paul's message to all. Verses 17 to 19. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So the gracious apostle affirmed his insistence on the obedience of all as a condition of God's loving manifestations of mercy. In the 10th chapter of 2 Corinthians in verse 5, the apostle Paul speaks of bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So this obedience that Paul insisted upon was not an external matter, but was one of the heart. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8 we read, In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel requires obedience as a condition of its reception. And then in the second chapter of Titus in verses 11 to 14, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Here we see that the gospel in its very essence is a turn from disobedience to a willingness to walk in obedience in the wonderful relationship of God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for thy great loving manifestation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given into our human realm to die for the sins of the whole world. And now we know that out of a loving heart thou dost insist upon a willingness of obedience as a condition of thy mercy. We pray that many may so repent, find forgiveness, and live a glorious life in thy presence, both here and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.